If you can make your way back to your seats, I'd appreciate it. All right, if you could remain standing for the, the reading of God's Word. <laughs> um, today we're going to be reading in Psalms 92, and that's on page 498 in the Bibles that are around the room. Um, please feel free, if you do not own one, to take one of these Bibles home with you today. Uh, that's what they're here for. And when I'm finished reading today, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I ask that you would say, thanks be to God. And we do this because God is speaking to us through his word. And when the scripture is read, it's as if Christ himself is preaching. And that indeed is uh, a great gift to us. So, Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, and the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like glass, grass and the evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evil evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. And my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. You are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as friends and family to give praise and glory to you, God. Father, we ask that your words shine a light upon our hearts, and we ask that our minds be open to understanding your gospel. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today to grow together. We're thankful for the chance to flourish in your courts, for the freedom to sing to your name. How great are your works, O oh Lord. Please be with Pastor Matt today as he leads us through your teachings. May his words challenge our hearts and be pleasing to you, Lord. And we pray this today in the name of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Jim. <laughs> All right. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good. Look at there's some some awake people here this morning. Life is good. Summer is great, right? I hope you all are enjoying it. As I said last week. I'm just taking it all in. And so somebody asked me, like, are you busy this summer? I'm like, well, if going to Wild Waters three times a week is busy, then I guess I'm busy. So that's about all I'm doing that's exciting right now. So and spending time with my kids. And so uh, uh, if you don't know, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here uh, right now. We're kind of cycling through all of our pastors here in, in Sparks because our lead pastor, Kyle, is on sabbatical. And uh, we're in the process of actually finding a replacement for him because he is moving over to the Reno Church. Um, and so uh, it's awesome because uh, 
I'm getting more opportunities to preach. We're getting more opportunities to hear other guys preach. And it's cool to see the men that God has put in this church as leaders and how God is uh, just growing us and using these people in our lives. And so it's exciting this morning that we get to install Jim as one of those elders. Um, And we're just looking forward to this season of ministry and what God is going to do during this time. And so um, if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Psalms. And we've been calling this our Redemption Songs uh, series. And up here we have the artwork. And we've been trying to look at the themes of Scripture through the book of Psalms, um, starting with creation, then looking at the fall, and then redemption. And today we begin our look at restoration. And so when we talk about restoration, um, the church actually used to say it was Um, consummation or the culmination of all things and ultimately what we refer to when we're talking about restoration is God returning all things to the way they were initially intended to be that's no more pain no more sorrow no more tears no more war no more violence no more abuse no more racism No more sexism, no more sin, no more death. God returning our souls to the place where they were supposed to be with him, and that is at rest. Hallelujah, church. And so restoration presently for us here and now is God's church, God's people living in light of his redemption. At the redemption, Jesus restored relationships between God and man. Jesus made a way for relationships with other people to be restored. Uh, As his church, we get this opportunity to begin to live as he intended life to be. In thanksgiving, with confidence, focused on him and his kingdom giving praise and glory to him. And some of these themes we see are going to come up today in this psalm, but the rest of them we're going to explore further over the next couple of weeks as we continue to look at restoration. And so we're in Psalm 92, and if you haven't made your way there in the Bible, or if you don't have a Bible open, it would be good for you to go there. That's on page 498. And the reason why we say have your Bible open, look at it, because we want you to see for yourselves that we're not just making this stuff up. God has spoken these words to us for a reason. They're good for our soul, church. And so take them in this morning as we look at this. And so Psalm 92, and um, it says at the beginning of Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. And so this note is added in here because this psalm was probably used by the Levites in temple worship on the Sabbath day. And so the Levites were the priests and the the servants of God that would lead in the, the temple worship. And so this is probably a song that was sung by them on the Sabbath. This is probably a song that was meditated on by the people of God on the Sabbath. And so for us in our non-Jewish Western context, we need to kind of look at what the Sabbath is. And so the Sabbath day was a day of weekly rest that was formally established by God and commanded uh, in the book of Exodus. 
And so in the Exodus, it was this time where God was delivering his people from the nation of, of, of Egypt, where they were under slavery. And so you guys maybe have seen the Ten Commandments or the, the Prince of Egypt, and you kind of know the story that goes that you know, God brought about the plagues and part of the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, God had a plan for his people to give them food, and that was that he gave them bread every morning in the dew. And so when this was initially set up, the people would go out and they would collect their bread every day. And God told them, only take what you need and only take enough for today because whatever you leave over to the next day, it's going to rot and it's going to be stinking and it's going to have worms in it. And so, um, but when we got to the sixth day of the week, that all changed. It says on the sixth day in Exodus 16, they gathered twice as much bread two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And then on the, Sabbath, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Not only did God not want them to work on the seventh day, but he made sure there was no bread for them to even get when they went out to the fields if they wanted to try and work on the seventh day. Because as people, our tendency is to go and go and go and, and to work and work and work because ultimately what we don't do is we don't trust that God's going to be faithful to giving us what we need when we take that day off. And so God says, guess what? It's not even going to be there, so don't even go try and look for it because I want you to rest in me. That's what the Sabbath day was for, for the nation of Israel. And then God commanded it in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. It became one of the Ten Commandments. Here's what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I love that at first God doesn't even give them any bread on the Sabbath day. And then when he commands us, 
he like takes out all the loopholes that they might try and put in there. Like, hey, I got a couple servants, God, they can do my work for me on the seventh day of the week, right? God says, no, no work is to be done in your land. It's for you and your people to rest. Throughout scripture, we see God's people were to rest from work and enjoy the presence of the Lord and the fellowship of each other on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is supposed to be a delight for God's people because in observing it, we have the opportunity to meet with the Lord. The ability to take a day off from our normal labors, from our work and devoting it to the Lord as his people, it's not always the easiest thing for us to do. And I'm thinking like in our Western context, there is so much that we can busy ourselves with on the Sabbath. We are so busy, we find it so hard to stop. But I'm sure that it was just as hard for, for the Israelites living in the, the society that they lived in, farming and ranching and tending their land. I'm sure taking a day off then wasn't really easy for them either, but it was a gift that was given to them from God. When we observe the Sabbath, it's essentially a way of us saying, God, you are God and I'm not. It's a way for us to accept God and his sovereignty. It's our way of recognizing that God is in control and we aren't. Because guess what? If you guys take today off, the world's not going to fall apart. Your job's still going to be there tomorrow, and there's still going to be work to do. But the Sabbath day was a day to intentionally draw your attention towards God, to rest in Him. Now, as Christians, living in light of Jesus and His resurrection in the New Testament, we don't observe the Sabbath as the Jews originally did. We no longer worship on Saturdays as they did. Instead, we worship on Sundays because Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday. And we see throughout the New Testament that um, in the beginning, Jesus appeared to the church as they were meeting on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. And then we see that pattern continue throughout the New Testament that they would gather on the first day of the week. And so as Christians, we celebrate what we call the Lord's Day each Sunday. It's the day where we devote ourselves to the Lord and to the worship of Him. And so this morning, we're going to see that the Lord's Day isn't necessarily the same as the Sabbath, but there are many parallels between the two. But there's one thing that I'm great, grateful for, that there's no uh, penalty for not worshiping on the Lord's Day as there was for the Sabbath. Because if you didn't observe the Sabbath in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. Now for us not observing the Lord's Day, I'm going to say that it's going to be bad for our souls we're going to see throughout this um, text as we go through this morning. But there's not a, a penalty associated with it as far as um, there was with the Sabbath. But there are many connections that we can make between um, the Sabbath and our Lord's Day celebration. The Sabbath is supposed to be a delight for God's people because in observing it we um, are delighting in the Lord. The Sabbath is a time for us to rest in God's finished work. Um, we talked about this this morning as we gathered in prayer. 
the Sabbath is such a gift that God has given us because he's done all the work and it's a way for us to acknowledge that. And so we see in the beginning, God created for six days and then he rested on the seventh day because his work was done. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And then when he ascended into heaven, he sat down because his work is done. There's nothing left for any of us to do except for to rest in him. Jesus even went as far to say that the Sabbath was made for man and not the other way around. Because as people, we are embodied souls. We need to take time for rest. We need to take time for reflection and remembering that God has done all this work. And it's not just for our bodies, but for our souls. It seems like for the past three years, um, right around after spring break, I'm a teacher, and so after spring break, things kind of get hectic at school. Um, it seems like at that point in time, I've got so much no going on that I get little to no rest. I mean, I coach soccer, I ref soccer, I do after school tutoring in Saturday schools and Sunday schools, trying to get kids ready for their AP tests, and I'm just going and going and going and going and going. And at that point in time, like my brain is just mush. My soul is weak and tired. I can't see clearly, I, you know, what's going on. I, I'm, I'm clouded with anxiety and, and I'm easily angered. And, and my life just seems hopeless at times. And so for the past three years, I've gotten this place and my wife says, you either need to take a break or I'm going to make you take a break. And so then I have to come to the elders and ask for a Sunday off, or I have to take a day off from work because I need to rest and devote myself to the Lord. I need that time where my soul can be revived by God. And I notice that when that happens, then all of a sudden, like everything's not so dreary. And so there's this need for rest that we have that sometimes we don't realize. We have anxiety and stress and these burdens that fall upon us and we think that we're bearing it all. But when we take that break, when we take that rest and focus it upon the Lord, he begins to give us perspective that he is the one that's doing the work and he is the one that's finished the work. And so we need rest. And so through all of this, this morning, what I want you guys to see is that God's work puts the rest in restoration. God's work puts the rest in restoration. So we're going to take a look at this psalm now. And as we see it, we're going to see that it's this hymn about the Sabbath and rest and that we can rest in God's finished work. So look at verse 1 with me. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. To sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Amen, church? Amen. Like this is a song that we could probably just put some music to and sing this morning, right? 
Like this is good stuff right here. And in these first three verses, we see what devoting ourselves to God on the Sabbath day looks like. We should be giving thanks to the Lord. We should be singing praises to his name. We should be declaring his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. And notice, we we talk about the Sabbath day, not the Sabbath morning. Like it's not just something for us to do right now and then go out and forget about God. This is something that our day is supposed to be devoted to because really our lives are supposed to be devoted to this. And so these are three things that we see as part of um, just resting in the Lord, giving thanks to him. Uh, for pre-service prayer, we as servants, we gather together and we pray over our service, we pray over our weeks. And this morning, we just said prayers of thanksgiving and it was just so good for my soul to not only say the things that I'm thankful for, but be reminded of things that are going on in other people's lives that they're thankful for. And so for us to just cry out to God and give thanks to him, it's good for our souls to sing praises to him. I love coming to church and singing worship songs with the people of God. It is so good for me. It's one of the things that I delight in most each and every week. And then part of our service, we declare God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. Not only does the preacher get an opportunity to do that, not only do we get an opportunity to do that when we sing songs over each other, but we also have our confession of faith time each and every week where we get an opportunity for all of us to speak God's truth over one another because this should be a part of us resting in God. And it's rightly so that we do this. Look at what it says in verse one. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is right. It is proper. It is fitting that we give thanks and praise to God. We have spent weeks talking about God's power as seen in creation and God's triumph over the fall through his death and resurrection and and the redemption that he gives us through that. And so it is right and fitting that we should thank God and praise him and declare those truths over each other on the Lord's day. For almost 500 years, the Anglican church has uh, included in its celebration of communion the following responsive declaration. The pastor would say, let us give thanks to the Lord, and the church would respond, it is right that we give him thanks and praise. It is right that we give him thanks and praise. It is good. It's not only fitting, but it's good for our souls as well. Observing the Sabbath for the Israelites or attending worship gathering on the Lord's day isn't something we do just because it's right and it's what we should do, but we should take joy in it. Look at verse four again. It says, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. As Christians, as people who have put our faith in Jesus and his death and his resurrection, we have been made glad by God. He has given us a new life and a new outlook on life. If God's love and faithfulness are the source of your hope and your life, it would only make sense that we would give thanks for those things, that we would sing praises because of those things. So it's right to give thanks. It's right to sing praises 
but it is also our delight to give thanks and our delight to sing praises. Think of it like this. I have this beautiful, smart, and amazing wife. We met almost 20 years ago. And just recently we celebrated our 17th anniversary. You guys can clap for that. I'm okay with that. We have four wonderful children. I've committed my life to her. She is my favorite person in the world. And I can tell you this without a shadow of a doubt, there's no other person that I would rather be with any day of the week. And so that being said, it would be weird if I didn't like to talk about my wife. It would be weird if you were my friend and you knew me for years and you never even heard me talk about my wife or never even knew that I had a wife because it should be my delight to talk about her. It should be my joy to talk about her because I love her so dearly. And it's the same with God. If you've surrendered your life to him and have been given new life by him, then Sunday worship service should be a joy in your life because you get to thank him and praise him and declare how good he is over the church and to one another. Sunday morning worship service shouldn't be boring, church. It shouldn't be a burden to us. It shouldn't be something that we can live without. It should be the highlight of our week. It should be the place where we're excited to go and something that we look forward to and can't live without. It's funny because in our modern Christianity, the worship service on the Lord's Day has transformed to become more centered on what we can get out of our worship of God. But it hasn't always been that way. If you look throughout the pages of Scripture, never once do we see worship being made about man. But it's always about God. We're here to give Him glory, to praise His name. And the only thing that we should be looking forward to getting out of each and every Lord's Day celebration is an opportunity to meet with the true and living God. That's what we're here for. Our delight should be in the Sabbath because our delight is in the Lord. Our rest comes from him, therefore our devotion should be directed toward him. And so in these first, first four verses, we, we get this picture of what we will be doing in the restoration. It will be to the praise and worship and thanksgiving and our devotion to our God. And so now we look at verse 5. It says, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So the psalmist continues in this great praise of God, talking about how great his works are, how, how different 
and, and outside of our thoughts, his thoughts are. And then he says that the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this. Now this is not an insult that the psalmist is throwing down here. He's not talking about somebody's intellectual ability or their IQ, but he's talking about their spiritual understanding. This is somebody who does not know who God is. And so he cannot know these things. He cannot comprehend these things. And these are the things that the person who is outside of understanding cannot know. They cannot know that the wicked will sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, but they are doomed to destruction forever. They cannot know that God is on high forever. And they do not see, they do not know that the enemies of God shall perish. As we think through this, as we think through these people, these enemies of God, these wicked and evildoers that the psalmist refers to, they can be classified as those whose ultimate delight is anything other than God. They don't rest in his love and his faithfulness. They don't find their hope in his nature and character. Instead, they look to things outside of God for their fulfillment. They delight in their career. They delight in their status. They delight in money. They delight in toys. They delight in sex. They delight in family. And there are so many other things that we see people in delight, delighting in other than God. And none of these things are, are necessarily evil on their own. In fact, many of them are gifts that God has given. But ultimately what these evildoers, these enemies of God are doing is they're worshiping the gifts and not the giver. And so, as a result, we see that they will perish. And in, and in verse 9, the psalmist isn't stuttering when he says, For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies. He's saying this to make a point, to emphasize that those who don't delight in God, that they will perish. And it's not that we all won't die, but it goes beyond just death. It's referring to the final judgment that we all will face. You see, if we've delighted in the Lord, if we've trusted in Christ, he will stand with us as our advocate, pointing to his life and his death for us and for our salvation to usher us into the kingdom of God. But if your delight is in something other than God, if you haven't trusted in him for your life and your salvation, then you will stand alone on your own works, on your own achievements. And the Bible is clear that they aren't enough to gain entrance into God's presence. And you will be cast out into hell and there you will perish is what the psalmist is referring to here. You see, if your delight is not in the Lord, if you're not resting in him and his works, 
if you haven't received his redemption, then there's no restoration for you to look forward to. But on the other hand, if you have delighted in God, here's what we have to look forward to in verse 10. It says, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of, the e- of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. The believer, the one whose rest is in the Lord will be exalted and will flourish. The imagery here is maybe not very clear for us in our context. I mean, you have exalted my horn. What does that mean? Well, a horn is a symbol of strength in, in the Old Testament. And so when it says that you have exalted my horn, that you have strengthened me to that like a, the wild ox. And uh, some people say that this is like the rhinoceros is really what this is referring to. And so if you think of the strength of the rhinoceros, I'm like, dang, that's, God is elevating me there. Like, because I don't have the strength of the rhinoceros now, that's for sure. Um, and then he says that he will anoint us with oil. And, and this has no you know, flashy thing going on, nothing hidden behind this. God's going to pour out lavish things upon those who have trusted in him is what he's saying here. Fine smelling oils, perfumes, and just lavishing his goodness and his grace and his riches upon us is what the psalmist is getting at here. So he's going to lift us up and then he's going to pour out his blessings all over us if we've put our delight and our trust in him. And then he says, my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of the evil assailants. He will bring justice and vindicate us before our enemies as well. My wife grew up in a Christian home and from an early age, one of the biblical principles that she had down was that vengeance belonged to the Lord. She would tell stories to me of getting picked on as a you know, elementary school kid on the playground. And, and she wouldn't pick up a rock to throw it at somebody. Instead, she would be like, Lord, vengeance is yours. Do with them as you will. And that would be her prayer. And I'm like, dang, that's crazy for like a little kid to say it. But like, isn't that like the most fearful thing that any of us could like have happen to us is that God would take out his vengeance upon us if we deserved it? And we do deserve it. But as friends of God, as those who have put our, our hope in him, we don't receive his vengeance. But those who haven't, our enemies, the evil assailants, those wicked who have not trusted in him, who have not delighted in him, they will experience 
God's vengeance. And now notice the psalmist doesn't try and tell God how to exact justice and vengeance. That's not on us. It's on God. But God is faithful to carry out his justice on those who um, have wronged us in this life. Then he says that the righteous flourish like the palm tree. I love that our picture of restoration is just this tree flourishing in this garden because that's the picture that the psalmist gives us here of what restoration will be like for those who have trusted in God. It's this tree that is planted and rooted deep. And so in Israel, the the palm tree in the Lebanon of, of cedar, those would be trees that they would look to as symbols of strength. And that's what God says we're going to be like as people who have delighted in him. We're going to be like those trees, those trees that can still thrive in the desert because God has planted us deep. But notice we're not planted in the desert, but we're planted in the house of the Lord. And we flourish in the courts of our God. This is something that he has done because guess what? I don't let my neighbors come plant trees at my house I'm the one that gets to plant things at my house. And so God's saying, you know what? You're mine. I'm planting you in my house. I'm going to root you deep here where you can flourish, where you can grow. And, and in verse 14, they, show, they still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green. One translation says that they're ever rank and fat. And like that word rank is just translated as they ever just smell good and bring forth these great aromas and we're fat because we've been just poured out blessings upon us by God. We are flourishing. And that's opposed to the evildoers up there in verse 9. But Psalm 92 is also considered a response to Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, Moses lamented over how we are like grass that just fades, that's just temporary, but we see, no, we're not. If we've put our trust in God, that he makes us like trees. And so these verses for us now, they are what we will fully realize in the restoration of God when he restores all things to the way that it should have been. And then in verse 15, finally, the psalmist reminds us of God's character. And it is our delight as his people to declare that the Lord is upright. And guess what? We're going to be doing this for all time. Because God has established us. God has caused us to flourish in the restoration. And why? So that we can continue to declare that he is good that we can continue to do what we were doing up in verses one through four, to delight in him, to declare that he is upright, that he is our rock, and that in him there is no unrighteousness. He is a God unlike any other. He remains true. He remains sure. He remains the place where we can run to and be safe. He is always righteous. He is always good. He is our delight. And in him and his work, we find our rest. So this psalm does two things for us this morning. It guides us in our Sabbath, here and now, how we are to worship, why we are to worship, 
but it points us to our eternal rest in the restoration of all things when God comes back to set everything right. As one of the pastors at Livingstone's Reno suggests, he says, our Sabbath is just rehearsal for God's ultimate restoration. When we will rest fully and completely in God and his finished work because we will be with him. Observing the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not reaffirmed for Christians in the New Testament. Because as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians, when he's talking about the festivals and the Sabbaths, he says this in Colossians 2.17, that these are the shadows. So the Sabbath is the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. True rest. True Sabbath is found only in the person and work of Jesus. And here's what Jesus promised us all in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This promise is for anyone who would come to him. So this morning, on this Lord's Day, let us come to him with all our weariness and anxiety and receive rest. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work that is characterized by love and faithfulness. That because he purchased redemption for us, he's also granted restoration for us. And that in him we find our rest. God, I pray for our church. I pray for the people in this room. God, it's so easy to get caught up in the things of this life to go and go and go. But you're calling us to rest in you. God, we thank you that your work is complete. There's nothing we can do to add to it. All you call us to do is come to you and you will give us rest. Give us rest this morning, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.